Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga and I'm your host. And in this episode, we have a very special guest who I think is fair to say is the leader of the FI movement. He's the author of the book called Simple Path to Wealth and also one of the best blog series out there about investing called The Stock Series. Welcome, JL Collins. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways, whether that be your requirements on general business advice, structuring, and use of multiple entities for tax minimization or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out altusfinancial.com.au. Now, I have to admit, I'm a little bit starstruck. So, JL has kindly volunteered his time today to discuss about personal finance and investing concepts from his book and also the stock series. So, uh, without wasting too much of his time, let's get started. Now, for the audience today, it's probably worthwhile sharing with you how this interview actually came to fruition. Essentially, I think, JL, I think about five months ago, I commented on one of your blog posts and I basically said, I'd love to have you as a guest. Uh, and I'm, a, I'm basically a podcast host uh, in Australia. And I couldn't believe it when you actually responded. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> well, I, I don't get too many requests from Australia and I, uh, I am still surprised but very honored that I have this international audience. So whenever I get a chance to speak to people outside the United States, I, I enjoy grabbing it. Is this the first time that you've done an interview in Australia, like uh, w- w- with an Australian audience? You, you know, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I don't remember. I, I, I don't think it is, but I couldn't put, put my finger on, on, on the last one I did. It is certainly one of, if it's not the first, it's one of the the very few. I mean, there's only been one or maybe two at the outside before. Certainly in the FI community in Australia, um, you're up there. You're up there in terms of um, probably one of the most recommended blog series uh, out there. So once again, thank you very much. So for the audience, what we'll do is in the first part of the episode, we'll talk about J.L. Collins's book from a financial concepts point of view, and then we'll take a bit of a break and then the second part of the uh, episode, we're going to talk about his stock series and also pick out all the financial concepts. Now, JL, when I read your book, I found this quote, and, and it goes something like this. Since money is the single most powerful tool we have for navigating this complex world we've created, understanding it is critical. If you choose to master it, money becomes a wonderful servant. If you don't, it'll surely master you. Can you explain that quote a little bit more? Yeah, I, well, I hope it's a little bit self-evident, but uh, the part about it being uh, the most effective tool, there, there is nothing I can think of that uh, uh, allows us better to navigate this complex world that we've created. It's a very complex world we live in, and there's a lot of uh, exchange of goods and services that are going on worldwide, and that happens through the vehicle of money and Money is is uh, in many different forms, and uh, we all exchange, uh, at least initially, our labor for the money we need to survive. And unless you go into the outback and live off the grid, you are going to have to have money to survive. And 
that's usually as far as people take it. And that's what I mean when I say money controls their life. But with a little bit of thought and planning, you can begin to make money your servant, make it work for you, make it generate income for you, so that you're no longer just dependent on your own ability to earn money, your own labor or of whatever sort that might be, but you can actually have assets that are working for you and earning money for you, which is kind of handy as you as you get up in years and you no longer have the uh, inclination or maybe even the ability to uh, trade your time for, for money. Yeah, so uh, essentially, I mean, you know, pe- people say money is not that important, but essentially I'll sort of think about it is money is important, but it's probably not the most important thing in your life, but it is important. And understanding that, and using it as a tool, like you say, it can really, really change your life, but also change the lives of people around you. You know, I, I, I have a little bit of impatience with, with people who dismiss the importance of money. Uh, it seems to me that, that tends to come from a very privileged point of view. Um, mm. Somebody, not me, but I, I, I wish I'd come up with this concept. Um, said that money's like oxygen. You know, as long as you have enough, it's unimportant. You don't think about it. But the moment you don't have enough oxygen, Mm. nothing in the world is more important than that next breath. And money is very similar. You know, money is unimportant as long as you have plenty of it and enough for your needs. The moment you don't, it suddenly becomes extraordinarily important. And so when people say, oh, money's not important, there are other things that are more important in life. What I hear is, oh, you are in a wonderfully comfortable position, mm-hmm. and that's great, but you also don't really appreciate it. And maybe that's understandable, like most of us don't walk around appreciating oxygen. That That is that is a phenomenal analogy. Uh, I've never actually heard of that before. I wish I could claim it as my own, but, but somebody else came up with it. I'd give them credit if I could think of it offhand, whoever it's- they were. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, analogy, and I think it's so true. Uh, and, and, you know, ironically, being a doctor, um, not having oxygen when patients come short of breath, um, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, they, they are literally... That's the end of the game, right? I mean, if, if, if somebody isn't, doesn't have oxygen, unless that gets corrected in the very, very, very near future, then nothing else matters, I would imagine. Absolutely. No, fantastic. Your investing philosophy seems so simple. Um, now, most of my audience are healthcare workers. So, a mix of doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. But we do have some other professions like lawyers, accountants. We also have tradespersons like carpenters, electricians. But essentially, there are three things you say in the book. Number one is you got to spend less than you earn. you got to invest the surplus and you got to avoid debt. Number two is you can't pick winning stocks. And number three is index funds, end of story. Now, I've always grown up with people telling me things are, if something sounds too good to be true, and we've all be, always been told that may not be true, so watch out. Um, and But your philosophy seems to follow that. And, and, and it is true because that, that sort of, I find that really uh, interesting. And I think when I talk to healthcare workers, who deal with complex situations, they can't fathom how simple investing can be. What's your, what's your viewpoint on that? I mean, obviously, you, you're probably going to be, well, my viewpoint is I agree with what I said, but it's like a, it's like a paradox. Um, you know, we deal with complex situations with patients all the time. We've always been made to feel that money and finances and investing is complex, but it seems it's not. So, uh, first of all, I agree with you, and I was, I was raised with my father not only saying that if it seems to be too good to be true, it probably is. He was even more dogmatic. He was like, it seems to be too good to be true, it is. You know, just, just avoid it. And I actually uh, have thought many times over the years, I, I've wondered why people listen to me. Uh, because I am, at least initially, now I have a, a, a pretty big reputation, I guess, and my, my work and my ideas have been vetted. 
uh, you know, like people who would be eager to find flaws in them. So there's that. But in the beginning, when people were first starting to read it, I, I used to wonder why. I mean, I mean, I I spent decades sorting out the way I invest, and and that's the reason I believe in it. It's what I tell my daughter, but. But I, I was always a little bit baffled that, that people evidently resonated so so well with people. I'm glad it did. At this point, there's a lot of uh, research that that uh, verifies that investing in low-cost index funds is the least expensive and most powerful way to invest. And there is a great irony, as you touched on, in that investing is maybe the one area of human endeavor that I can think of where the less effort you put in, the better result you're going to get. Uh, you know, if you want to be a, a uh, an excellent doctor, well, the way to become an excellent doctor is to put more effort in, more study, more experience. And that's true of almost anything I can think of. But the truth with investing is that the more you tinker with your investments, the more effort you put in looking at it, analyzing it, trying to come up with esoteric ways to approach it, the less well you're going to do. And the research is is absolute on that on that conclusion. So what I tell people, and I wrote this book for my daughter who has zero interest in in finance, but she's smart enough to know that if she gets a couple of things right and puts this stuff on autopilot, the options available to her in her life, because her money will be working for her, will be dramatically expanded. Uh, and she's got better things to do with her time than, than trying to figure out how to, how to all these esoteric investments. And the beauty of that is that that is actually a, a superpower. Now, the caveat is that you do have to get a couple of basic things right, a couple of things that you have to understand. You touched on them to begin with. You have to have capital to invest. That means you have to stop spending everything that you earn on on, on trinkets and trash. Uh, you have to set aside some money to invest. And the more you set aside, the more quickly you will achieve your goal. And you have to avoid debt because that's a huge drag on on uh, mm. your efforts to become, uh, become FI. So mm -hmm. you have to do those things. And then you have to understand a couple of basic principles that I lay out in the book or on the blog, which is to invest in low-cost, broad-based index funds. And then critically, and this is particularly important at this moment in time as markets are, are uh, going through one of their periodic drops, you have to be willing to stay the course. You have mm -hmm. to accept there's no way you can anticipate uh, when these drops are going to happen how bad they'll be, how deep they'll go, or when they're going to turn around. But you know that they're temporary. You know, it's just like hurricanes. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, there's, if you live in Florida, in the United States, you should never be surprised by a hurricane. Uh, they can be very damaging, they can be very scary, but they never last forever. Mm -hmm. And you take operation and stay the course and, and that's the way it is with investing but that also is part of, of the simplicity of it uh, is that you don't not only do you not have to chronically be monitoring and changing your investments you should not be doing that the less you do the more I mean you're absolutely spot on in the sense that when I was in medical school I was always under the impression that the more I studied, the more practice I did with examinations, history taking, procedures, than I did postgraduate training, the more practice I did, the better I got at something, which means I kept having to tinker my finesse. If you pay more, generally, you're going to get a better car. If you pay more, generally, you're going to get a better house. If you pay more, generally, you might actually get better better food. Um, so this, you get what you pay for is something that's been ingrained in people throughout their lives. And, and, and I think Jack Bogle uh, said, in investing, you get what you don't pay for, which is completely turns everything on its head. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And uh, the, to have that foresight to be able to do that is, is just incredible. So I take it in, uh, and you did touch on market volatility at the moment. So there's a saying in investing, um, if America sneezes, Australia gets a cold because, you know, pretty much uh, we our markets 
you know, pretty much sort of mirror what happens in the United States. We've got about 3% of the global market, uh, 12th biggest stock market in the world. But America, obviously, is the dominant force in economy and investing. But um, the current times are very volatile. There's lots of things happening around the world. And I think you would have seen a lot of things happening around the world during your investing career and your life in general. Um, I suspect your investing hasn't changed despite what's happened in the last six months. Well, my investing over the decades has changed dramatically until I, I finally hit on the on the approach that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying is, no, my the approach that I discuss in the book and on the blog has not changed uh, with the volatility even even a little bit. Yeah, and and I guess I think we're about a thousand points below our all time highs. Um, I haven't checked what it is with the Dow Jones or the Nasdaq or the S and P five hundred. Would you happen to know? Or I, you know, not off the top of my head. The S and P, which is is probably in my judgment the best measure because it's 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 the broadest. I think it might be down a thousand points, maybe. I think it's yep. it, it peaked somewhere around forty eight hundred and is now down around three thousand somewhere. Right. Yeah. So, like that. So, I mean, it's it's. It's, I think last I heard it was down about 20%, which is right at the definition of a bear market. Yep. Very, very similar in Australia. And for those of you wondering that are listening, here's the stats. Um, over the last 15 years, and there's actually a website called SP Global um, uh, SPIVA, S-P-I-V-A, that talks about how passive investing versus active fund managers and who beats who. Um, in Australia... The 84% of active fund managers underperformed the S&P ASX 200 over the last 15 years, uh, which is our benchmark compared to the S&P 500 in the United States. Um, And you can extrapolate that. They have data on the US, 83% underperformed. Canada, 81% underperformed. India, 68% underperformed. Japan, 81% underperformed. And the stats in Europe as a whole was 83% underperformed. And I think, JL, you hit on this before. Uh, you said the research, the data, the evidence is out there. It's open. It's easy to understand. And that's what it's almost impossible to believe, but it's the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, on the off chance that, that you were lucky enough, and it would strictly be luck, to find one of those managers that outperformed, there is not only no guarantee that that outperformance will continue, but the research also indicates that outperformance in the past is a good indicator of underperformance going forward. Mm. So it's it's a very, very difficult thing to do to, to consistently outperform the uh, the market and the cost of doing it is one of the reasons it's just such a huge drag uh when you a jack as jack bogle has said one time you know performance comes and goes but costs are forever correct so one of the keys to the superior performance of low-cost index funds is the low-cost part of it yeah it's 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 mind-boggling um and as healthcare workers who are listening, we follow evidence-based medicine. So uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't follow evidence-based investing. There was another quote in your book that I found, and you did touch on it about debt, um, and it goes something like this. If you intend to achieve financial freedom, you're going to have to think differently. It starts by recognising that debt should not be considered normal. It should be recognised as a vicious pernicious destroyer of wealth building potential. It truly is. It has no place in your financial life. That's pretty hardcore. Uh, so uh, uh, have you made enemies with that quote or not really? I, not, well, not that I'm aware of. I probably have. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, every institution that, that lends money, if they're, if they're aware of that quote, probably would, would object to it. And it, it probably is perhaps a little bit on our side, but I, I uh, there there is such a huge drumbeat uh, in the United States, and I would guess probably in Australia, absolutely encouraging people to borrow money, borrow money, and and uh, I think it's as the quote says, I think it's, it's extraordinarily damaging. So rather than err on the side of 
borrowing money, you should err on the side of not borrowing money. Uh, does occasionally borrowing money uh, serve a useful purpose? Yes, occasionally. But you should think long and hard before you take on that burden. And around the world, and I think also in the United States and certainly in Australia, in the last two or three months, the Reserve Bank has raised uh, record low interest rates. And when you turn on the TV and watch the news, all they ever talk about is mortgage stress, cost of living pressures, inflation, um, you know, having to pay extra uh, on their debt. I suppose what about uh, what, what, I, what I got from that quote is essentially what you're saying is definitely avoid consumer debt, which 100%. I mean, consumer debt is just silly. But what about things like borrowing money to buy property or investing in shares or index funds? Um, where this so-called concept of good debt, what's your viewpoint on that? Well, so when you say uh, borrowing money to invest in property, uh, I think you need to make a distinction between investment property and your personal home. Yeah. So if you're you're borrowing money to buy investment property, you are now in the real estate investment business. And borrowing money as part of any business can be a useful tool. So that's a whole different kind of conversation. But focusing on, on the idea of borrowing money for a personal residence, you know, that's, that's what most people classify as good debt. Yep. Uh, but I would suggest that it depends on what your goals are. So if your goal is to be financially independent, then it doesn't have to be, by the way. That was always my goal. There was nothing more important to me than, than my financial freedom. There was nothing that I could spend my money on that I would rather have than, than my financial freedom. But I recognize not everybody feels that way. But if you do, then most people wind up buying more house than they need. They wind up spending copious amounts of money furnishing that house, remodeling that house, maintaining that house far beyond the obvious thing they look at, which is their their mortgage. And it is almost inevitably going to be a much more expensive way to live than simply renting only the space you need. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, for most of my adult life, I've owned houses. Mm-hmm. Does that make me a hypocrite? Well, I don't think so. I didn't, because they didn't buy them thinking they were great investments. I bought them thinking that they were expensive indulgences that at the time I could comfortably afford. I never bought the maximum house that the banks and the real estate agents were telling me I could afford. Mm. I bought much more modest houses than that because, again, I wanted to make sure I had plenty of money to to invest for my larger goal, which was be, to be financially independent. So I am not saying never buy a house, mm. but I am saying don't buy into the, the industry propaganda that it is always or even commonly a good investment and certainly don't buy the most house they tell you you can technically borrow to buy. Cool. I think in your stock series, there's an article which I will sort of come back to in the second half of this episode where you do talk about, um, you know, uh, buying a house is like, I think you say something like the ter- the most terrible thing you can do. <laughs> so a uh, controversial statement in Australia where uh, – Everyone is entitled to own their own home. <laughs> so um, we'll come back to that in the second half. You say that a stock market crash is a gift and we should cherish it. Now, that is kind of very similar to, you know, Warren Buffett's stance. Um, basically, when everyone's fearful, be greedy. When everyone's greedy, be fearful. Again, this sort of paradox of when the stock market goes down or when prices in general go down, um, you know, think about it like a discount. Why do you think that people generally don't do that? Because in the last sort of three months, I've had heaps and heaps of doctors, nurses personally contact me and basically say, I'm really nervous to invest because there's going to be a recession. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world and they're just extremely nervous. And to me, that sounds like finances and investing in mostly behavioral as opposed to, you know, 100% knowledge. Well, I think it, I think it is behavioral, but it but it's also uh, based on knowledge, or at least a lack of knowledge. I think one of the things that makes people so nervous about investing in the in the stock market is they really don't understand it. 
They really don't understand how it works and how it functions and why it is going to continue to go up, even though it is a volatile ride. So when I look at the dips in the market, it doesn't bother me even a little bit. And by the way, you know, when I was first investing, it did. I mean, you know, those I understand when, when the market uh, drops, how scary it can be because I can remember being scared myself. Hmm. But now I recognize it as the very ordinary part of the process it is. In a sense, enduring that volatility, enduring drops like this one is the price of admission. It's, it's what you have to be prepared to tolerate in order to get the outsized benefits of wealth building that, that the market can provide. So I think once people understand that, that when the market drops, it, it's not the end of the world. It's not something unique. It's it's not something that's never had. It's, it's a very common and uh, should be very expected kind of thing, even though it's scary. I think the media plays a huge role in, in panicking people the way they report this stuff. Uh, so one of the things you can do is, is tune out that noise. Uh, on my blog, I have a post, uh, and I think the title is Time Machine and the future value of stocks or something to that effect. It starts with time machine. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it a couple of years ago around oh, probably 2015. And in that post, I, I, I do a little thought of experiment. I say, imagine that we are all back in 1975 and we're sitting around having a, having a beer or a cup of coffee. And, and uh, we start speculating on, on what, uh, the stock market is going to do over the next 40 years between then and, and 2015. And I raised my hand and I said, you know what? You don't have to speculate because as it happens, I just invented a time machine. I just tested it out. I just came back from 2015 and I can tell you what happened in those 40 years. Hmm. And of course, then I list the things that happened and this is going to be a, a United States centric list mm -hmm. that probably applied to Australia. You know, we had the high inflation in the 70s, stagflation in the 70s, and the huge interest rates. And, and, you know, we had a couple of wars that we fought and the tech collapse in 2000. Everybody I go through all the terrible things that happened in those 40 years. And everybody around the circle says, well, wow, thanks for telling us that clearly we don't want to be in the stock market. That sounds like it's going to be a very very difficult, challenging 40 years, as indeed it was. Hmm. But of course, the truth is, in the United States, the stock market, through that challenging time, returned 12% a year on average. Hmm. So it was a wonderful time to be investing. And that's kind of the point. There is never going to be a perfect time to invest when all the stars align and there's no... Uh, uh, there's no bad things happening in the world, you know, that just, that, the, that there's always going to be turmoil. Yeah, there's and always. And yep. the market is going to continue to, to grind through it. Now, some of those things are going to, are going to cause the market to take sharp drops along the way. But as we discussed, that's a natural part of the process. But that 40 years, with all those obstacles in the way, the market posted a remarkable 12% return a year. Uh, that's that's pretty incredible. That that is incredible. And and for listeners out there who are interested, uh, a Vanguard usually publish uh, JL in Australia. They publish a yearly chart uh, which incorporates the U.S. market, Aussie markets, bonds, and cash, and I think international equities. They haven't released it for the twenty twenty two financial year. For our financial year, it's um June uh, sorry July the first to June thirtieth. But last year they, they, they published it and, um, yeah, US was around 12% and Aussie, Aussie market was around 11% in those 30-year time frames. So it is quite remarkable um, despite all the turmoil in the world and locally. Uh, you know, we've had natural disasters, et cetera, and people made a lot of money. Yeah, it's, it, it really, really, you know, it's remarkable. And I think we need to to do a little disclaimer and say I'm not suggesting, and I doubt if you are, Dev, that anybody count on 11, 12 percent annual returns going mm. forward. Yeah, uh, because those are extraordinary. But the point is that there will never be uh, a pristine time to invest where there are no clouds on the horizon. 
There yeah. will always be clouds on the horizon. There will always be bad things happening. There will be always reasons not to invest if if you choose to let those things get in your way. Absolutely. I think that's well put. Um, I found this other quote in your book about you having very few regrets, but one of the regrets that you did have is you spent so much time worrying about how things might work out and you found that it was just a huge waste of your time and the older you get, the wiser you get and you're sort of more interested in, you know, purging things in your life that are not particularly useful and value or seek out things or people that add value to your life. So that's kind of non-financial advice. Basically, you know, the take-home message that I got, and correct me if I'm wrong, is don't worry about all the small stuff. Um, Focus on the big picture and just don't stress out too much because all the little things don't really matter too much. Would that be fair enough to summarize? I, I think that that's a yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. And the other thing, the other part of it would be, you know, only worry about or only think about worry is probably the wrong word. Only think about the things that you can actually control. So, what are the things you can control in this arena? Well, you can avoid going into debt. Hmm. You can arrange your life so you're not spending every dime you get. You can take that surplus and you can invest it for the long term. You can take the time to understand that the market will be volatile and not let that concern you. In fact, see it as the opportunity to buy shares on sale that it that it truly is. Those are the things that that you can control. Now, is something horrible going to happen to Australia, for instance, that's going to completely destroy your economy, uh, akin to a war being fought on your soil and, and what have you? Well, certainly doesn't look like it now, I hope, and, and, but that's something that you can't control. And that is something that would end the game, so to speak. But you can't control it. There's no sense in worrying about it. Uh, the odds are it's not going to happen. So what you do today is either going to leave you broke in the future or it's going to leave you wealthy. And no matter what bad things are coming, you are better off having money. Absolutely. Uh, so control what you can control. I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? I say, and then don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I get so many messages for people that just get worried about every little thing, you know, oh, the expense ratio is 0.05% versus another one that's an expense ratio of 0.03%. Which one should I invest in? Well, if you don't have money to invest in, then it doesn't matter. And if you haven't invested and you're fretting about those sort of things, then you haven't really got the big picture. Start early and, and, and keep going. So that, that's that's um very, very useful tip. Yeah, I get the same kind of things. People obsess over over minutia and uh, you know expense ratios are important if you're looking at one fund that is charging uh, 0.9 percent and you're looking at which will be an actively managed fund and uh, as opposed to a low-cost index fund that's charging 0.04 percent that's worth thinking about but mm. if you're looking at two low-cost index funds one's 0.04 one's 0.05 you know, then, then now you're you're just being silly. That's right, yeah. Just a couple more things about your book. In your book, you recommend a pretty aggressive savings rate, I think up to 50% of your income. Have you had any criticisms about how aggressive that is? Or, I mean, obviously in the FI movement, 50% um, is, you know, not that high, Um but for the average person, that may come across as quite significant. Um, interestingly, during my early early medical sort of years when I was training, I, I did use the 50% rule. So basically, I saved and invested 50% of my income. What do you think about that? Would you change that um, if someone asked you again? Or do you think 50% is a, is a pretty good start? So, uh, so several questions in there, and I'll answer the, the last one first. No, I wouldn't change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first Part of your question was, have I got pushback from them about this or criticism? And the answer to that is, well, absolutely yes. I mean, I've had people, uh, especially early on, uh, who did reviews of the book who just completely dismissed all my work because I suggested that 
people should save 50 percent of their income and, mm. and their feeling was well that's just not possible well of course it is possible mm. i mean i've done it many other people have done it i've met people who've saved 60 70 80 90 percent of their income mm. so when you when people say it's not possible that's just nonsense it's absolutely possible is it easy no mm. uh was a lot easier it's a lot easier if you do it from the beginning like i did and by the way in the beginning i didn't have any you know in the early 70s when i graduated college and got out in the workforce you know there was none of this information out there so i was i was wandering in the wilderness so i picked 50 percent kind of randomly in my first professional job i was making ten thousand dollars a year I thought, well, I can live on 5000 and then that'll free up 5000 to invest. And that's what I did. Never felt like deprivation to me. Uh, and then when I was making 20000 a year, now I had 10000 to invest and my lifestyle increased because I had 10000 to live on. Now, I can understand that I am sympathetic with somebody listening to this who's maybe 35 or 40 years old and has expanded their lifestyle where they're spending every dime they make. Uh, maybe even borrowing money to to maintain an expanded lifestyle that they shouldn't be doing. I mean, I can understand that's going to be very difficult to back away from. But again, as I said earlier, this only matters if you care about being financially independent. Mm. Right? And a lot of people, most people, don't care about that. Mm. I, that kind of baffles me that they don't, but it's not my life. I'm not trying to persuade anybody of, of anything, but I am describing steps you can take if being financially independent is, is a goal that appeals to you. And the more aggressive your savings rate, the faster you will get there. So if 50% feels too aggressive to you and you only want to do 40%, well, it'll take you longer. If you only want to do 30%, it'll take you longer still. If you're only going to do five or even 10 percent you're probably not going to be there until you're a very old person assuming you start as a very young person perfect yeah absolutely i think it's much easier as well to save 50 percent in your 20s than it is in your 40s when you got two kids and all they want to do is go on holidays and and <laughs> spend all your money but um i've got i've got two young kids and it's challenging for us to save 50 percent today than what it was in my early 20s, mid 20s, when I was a junior doctor, where I can sort of, you know, make lifestyle changes, you know, skip a meal here or there, or, you know, um, have macaroni cheese for lunch or dinner, pretty hard to force your kids to have macaroni cheese every day. Now, you're not a great fan of dollar cost averaging. Um, have I got that wrong? Um, I think you, you sort of prefer, you know, just if, if you've got a lump sum money, just chuck it in because over time, it's probably going to be worth more than if you just split it up in dollar cost average. Right. So you have to be a little careful with this. When I, uh, when I say I'm not a fan of dollar cost averaging, we are talking about how to handle a lump sum of money that has come your way. Maybe you've saved up a bunch of money and you haven't known what to do with it. Maybe you got an inheritance. Maybe you sold a piece of property, whatever it is, we're talking about a lump sum of money. Uh, where I am a fan of dollar cost averaging is through your earned income, right? So yeah. if you follow my strategy and you're going to save 50% or some portion of your income, then that's a form of dollar cost averaging. You don't have any option because you can only invest the money as it comes to you. Mm. That form of dollar cost averaging, I like very much. And that's the, that, that allows you to take advantage of these dips in the market we're experiencing right now, assuming that you stay the course. And of course, you absolutely should. But if you're talking about a lump sum, then yeah, I'm not a fan of dollar cost averaging because the math uh, is heavily tilted towards investing right away. The market goes up about 75% of the time and about 25% goes down. Mm. It's to say it goes up about three out of four years and one year it goes down. So at any given moment of time, your odds of the market going up from the moment you invest is 75%. So mm. those are pretty good odds, and you should, you should probably play those odds. Dollar cost averaging will only come out better 
if the market drops. Mm. If the market stays flat, you will simply have delayed investing your money, uh, and, and that will give you a lower performance than investing it all at once. Uh, of course, if the market goes up, then your dollar cost averaging at higher and higher cost. So you know, the three scenarios that can happen, only one works to your advantage. Now, of course, that also means that there are times, and the last six months has been one of those times, where if you had in had a lump sum back in January, December, you would have been better off to have dollar-cost averaged it mm. for this last six months, right? Yep. So there are times when when it is, and, I, and I'm thinking of that because... I have a comment on my blog that I intend to actually do a blog post about because he's talking about his sister who followed this advice six months ago and it does not work out for her. So that is a risk that you are taking. Mm. That's the 25% chance, so to speak. But the other thing, and I think this is this really has gone unnoticed in most of the conversations about this, is let's suppose you say, well, you know what? I, all that makes sense, JL, but but I just I, I'm just too nervous that you know the day I put my lump sum in, the next day the market's going to drop forty percent, mm. and that's going to be a really bad day for me. And I don't want to deal with that. So I understand what you're saying. I understand the odds. I'm still going to dollar cost average. Well, okay, I'm not going to argue with you if you feel that way then you know you should never be invested in the stocks unless you are prepared for that huge drop because you have to stay the course and those are normal things as we talked about it. So you dollar cost average. And you have to understand that at the end of, of the, the year or whatever period you're dollar cost averaging over, let's suppose you had $120,000 and you said, I'm going to put it in at $10,000 a month. Okay. So at the end of 12 months, you will have invested your $120,000 and you did it because you were afraid if you'd done it all at once of this huge market collapse. Well, the moment you put that last $10,000 in, you are at exactly the same risk mm. of the next day, the market dropping 40%. Yeah. So you really haven't mitigated that risk at all. I mean, you've mitigated it maybe for the 12 months, if the bad thing happens to happen in that period, but you haven't long-term mitigated. So those are some of my thoughts about it. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think it's important that you clarified that this is two versions of dollar cost averaging. One is when you have a lump sum, which most people don't have in you know, 100K to invest tomorrow. Most people will just set a, set a portion of their income and, and just invest over a period of time. And that's a different type of dollar cost averaging. So that's an important- yeah, That's a great question. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. So let's take a bit of a break. And then we're going to talk about JL's stock series. In my opinion, it's probably one of the best stock series financial blogs out there. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back. Now, just another thanks to Altus Financial for getting behind My Millennium Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into or selling or opening your first practice, Altus Financial can help. Altus is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Click the link in the show notes to find out more. In this second part of the episode, we're going to talk about a stock series. Um, now, JL, what was intriguing was that you were actually in the 70s and 80s, I think it was, you were an active investor, which is completely different to what you've been doing over the last sort of 20 odd years or so. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your life? Yeah, so I uh, uh, there, there are some some interesting ironies here. I I started investing in 1975, and the irony is that is the year that Jack Bogle brought out the first index fund, the S and P 500 index fund. Uh, my life would have been a lot easier, and I would be a lot wealthier today had I in, done nothing other than invest in that fund. But I didn't know about that at the time. I was I was unaware that, that this thing had come out. Uh, as a lot of people were, because it was a brand new concept. It was not well received uh, because the industry realized that this was going to cause, if this became uh, popular, it was index funds were going to cost them a lot of money and fees. So in most quarters of, of the investment community, it was the idea was disparaged and took a while to catch on. I didn't personally hear about it until 1985. Uh, and when I did, I, uh, this is the regret I have because then I actually had the chance to invest in it, but I was unwilling to accept the concept for reasons we can talk about otherwise. Mm. Um, and, but part of the reasons were that it's not like index investing works and actively picking stocks or picking mutual funds that are managed by people actively creating stocks. It's not like those things don't work. So I was having success doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's, it's not a bad thing versus a good thing. It's a matter of something that works with a fair amount of effort, a lot of effort, and then something that works better with almost no effort. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a little bit counterintuitive that such a thing can exist, like we talked about earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And it took me way too long to to finally recognize the, the truth of it. I'm a, what can I say? I'm a slow learner. <laughs> ten to ten to fifteen years. That's a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but one of my dirty little secrets is that I achieved financial independence as an active stock picker and a picker of, of uh, mutual funds run by, by uh, active managers. How interesting. Yeah. Um, now, your stock series can be found uh, on your website, jlcollinsnh.com, and for listeners, I will include it in the show notes. Uh, what's the NH stand for? <laughs> it stands for New Hampshire, which was the state in the United States that I lived in at the time when I was creating the blog. And, you know, I was... <laughs> I, I had no idea that the blog was going to develop a, an international audience. I, mm. I uh, created it because a friend of mine said this, these letters I was writing to my, my daughter were kind of interesting and I should share them with family and friends. And I thought, wow, that's a great way to archive the information. So I wanted those family and friends to know that it was me. So I wanted the name of the blog to, right. to essentially be my name, but all the versions of my name is pretty common. It's James Collins. And all the versions of my name were already taken until I tacked on the NH at the end of JL Collins and, and the magic was born. I wish if I had any idea what the future of the blog was, I, I would have picked a much more clever name like Go Curry Cracker or, or <laughs> Mr. Mustache or the mad scientist or something, but uh, but I had no clue. And is the stock series very similar to your book in terms of the concepts that people will learn from it? Very similar. Uh, the book, first of all, I tell people there is nothing in the book that you can't find on the blog. 
that was very intentional. That, that went, against, went against the advice I got at the time, by the way, which was to be sure to put things in the book that are not on the blog so people have to buy the book. Well, that's kind of a crappy thing to do to my readers. I don't want to do that. Uh, the book is more concise. It's better organized. I spend more time polishing the writing. Uh, but the, everything in the book, all the concepts can be found in the blog. In fact, I tell people, if you think the book might be of interest to you, uh, before you run out and spend your money to buy it, go to the blog, read some of the stock series. And if that resonates with you uh, and you still want to buy the book, then you've got, you know, if you like what you read there, you will like the book. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're not going to like the book. Cool. Um, you, you discussed the concept of FU money. Um, and there's an article on the stock series or on your website which says why you need FU money. And in that article, it's a very poignant story about your eight-year-old daughter at the time um, asks you, Daddy, are we poor? Can you talk a little bit about your response and what FU money is? Yeah, so to set the stage a little bit, uh, this this was after 9-11. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was in the magazine business at the time. And I was a group publisher of some technology magazines. And of course, that was the tech crash. Mm-hmm. And then the, the final nail in the coffin after the tech crash was, was 9-11. So the whole division I worked for kind of crumbled and, and I got kicked to the curb along with a lot of other people. So I was sitting uh, on the couch watching the news with my daughter and the TV was on. And, and of course, it was in the middle of this post 9-11 recession and you know, as the TV loves to dramatize things that show mm-hmm. a line of people lined up to get uh, food. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, the announcer was talking about how terrible the economic conditions were and, you know, these poor people were having to do this. And, and my daughter, of course, knew that I wasn't working. She wasn't old enough to understand all the nuances, but she knew that for whatever reason, Daddy wasn't going to work anymore. And, mm-hmm. and I had not been for probably two years at that point, mm-hmm. something like that. And so she's listening to this announcer talk about these poor people standing in line to get food because they'd lost their job. Mm. And she knew that her daddy wasn't working, so she turned to me and she said, Daddy, are we poor? And it was a great teaching moment because I said, no, we're not. She said, but you don't have a job. And I said, no, I don't, but we have money that's working for us. Mm. And that's the difference. So while I wasn't working to make an income, by that point in my life, I had investments that were working to provide income. So my losing my job um, wasn't my preference, wasn't my choice. It was a job I enjoyed, but financially it didn't alter our life at all. That's that's a very poignant, poignant story. Um, at this stage, we are going to play a YouTube clip, just the audio of JL Collins' video about FU money. Now, just word of warning, if you've got young kids, people that get easily offended, um, maybe pause it now and skip it and listen to it with headphones on. Don't listen to it in public. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask JL to introduce this YouTube clip and we will list that link in the show notes. So um, if you could introduce that clip, that'd be great. Yeah, so this is, first of all, I, uh, your, the warnings you gave our listeners are, are well taken. This this has some, uh, shall we say, spicy language in it. It is. There's a movie called The Gambler, uh, and John Goodman plays one of the starring roles in it. And this is a, a takeoff on on a uh, on a little bit of dialogue that that he has talking about having fu money, and I think people know what the fu stands for. Hmm. And when I heard him do it. His take is a little different, or the scriptwriter's take is a little different. But I thought, I, I want to do a version of that. And, and, of course, in the movie, the language is the way it is. And I don't typically use this kind of language, but I imagine John Goodman doesn't either. But we're both playing a role in this particular case and, mm-hmm. and making illustration. So while I don't necessarily endorse the language, I do endorse the concepts in it. No worries. At this stage, we'll go to the clip. So, Nate, take it away. You get up two and a half million dollars. Any asshole in the world knows what to do. 
You put 80% in VTSAX, and now you own a piece of every publicly traded company in the United States of America. And every fucking stiff, from the factory floor to the CEO, is working to make you richer. Put the other 20% in VBTLX for your bonds to smooth the ride. Use the 4% rule and pull your 100 grand a year to spend. Don't buy a fucking house. Who needs the headaches? Rent yourself a nice place. Let the landlord worry about fixing the fucking toilets. You need a car? Get an indestructible economy shitbox and you're done. That's your base, get me? That's your fortress of fucking solitude. That puts you for the rest of your life at a level of fuck you. Somebody wants you to do something? Fuck you. Your boss pisses you off? Fuck you. Keep a few bucks in the bank to pay your bills. Don't buy shit you don't really want to impress assholes you don't really like. Don't drink. That's all I have to say to anybody on a social level. Did your grandfather take risks? Yes. I guarantee he did it from a position of fuck you. A wise man's life is based around fuck you. The United States of America is based on fuck you. You're a king? You got an army? The greatest navy in the history of the world? Fuck you, blow me. We'll fuck it up ourselves. Which we have done. A great fuck you position. Lost forever. So that was that was an interesting clip there, um, and and like I said, hopefully no one listened to it in public transport in uh, without headphones. And now your your sort of basic recommendation about investing is the pick a broad market index fund. What's your view on thematic ETFs? Um, there's a fair few around. So by thematic, you mean sector ETFs, I'm assuming? Correct. So tech, lithium, uh, mining, banking, crypto. Oh, not crypto, but, you know, companies that mine crypto, et cetera. So, or artificial intelligence, for example. Right. So I, I, am, I am not a, a sector investor for, this, for pretty much the same reason I don't invest in individual stocks. Uh, you know, investing individual stocks means that you are trying to figure out what company is going to outperform the broader market. When you invest in a sector ETF, uh, which is how we talk about it in the U.S., uh, you're betting that a certain sector of the economy is going to outperform going forward. Hmm. So you know, maybe you're buying uh, an, an ETF that invests in financials or technology or uh uh, energy or whatever, you are basically saying, I think that this particular sector is going to outperform the market as a whole going forward. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that you can predict that kind of thing. Um, so I am not a, a fan of doing that. I used to, oh, probably in the early, when I first started the blog, mm-hmm. my, uh, my portfolio was uh, total stock market index fund total bond market index fund, and then a quarter, so a half in the stocks, a quarter in the bonds, and then a quarter of it was in REITs, which are real estate investment trusts. My thinking at the time was this would be an inflation hedge, but the more I thought about it, I I realized that stocks themselves are a pretty good inflation hedge, Mm. uh, for one, and number two is by owning 25% of REITs, what I was really saying was that I thought that real estate was not going to outperform the rest of the market. And I didn't really think that. I really didn't believe that. I had no reason to think that. So that's why I got I got rid of the REITs when I got rid of them. So that's a, a, a long explanation of why I don't like sector funds. But it also, if you'll indulge me, it leads me into one of the criticisms of a broad-based index fund uh, is it has been over over the last few years that effectively it's really a technology fund mm. because in the United States all of the top companies in the S and P five hundred, uh, as an example, are not all of them, but but a large majority of them are technology companies. So one of the criticisms is, well, aren't you just buying a technology ETF when you buy the the total stock market or the S and P? 500 and and isn't that a a flaw uh well no i in my view it's it's not a flaw it's a feature and the reason it's a feature is that that's true today that technology owns the top segment of it and if you're in 
uh, if you're in these funds, you are heavily in the technology sector. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always the case. There, there have been times when energy would have occupied that top spot and when, or when finance, financials would have occupied that top spot. And there will come a time in the future when it will be something other than technology, or at least I would guess. Mm-hmm. But just like I don't have to figure out what stocks are going to outperform, I don't have to figure out what sectors going to outperform because it will automatically rotate to the top of my broad-based index fund. And so I will benefit from it. So hopefully that makes some sense. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I certainly don't buy thematic ETFs or sector ETFs because, like you said, it's akin to active investing. So, And this whole self-cleansing mechanism of broad-based index funds or ETFs um, is is a very important future. Uh, sorry, feature of it, which uh, which you've just highlighted. Last question. You're a big fan of Vanguard. Now, listeners of my podcast know that uh, I use Vanguard to invest. We, we have Vanguard Australia, which is a extension of the parent company. Have you ever met Jack Bogle, just out of interest? Uh, no, I, I, I haven't met Jack uh, Bogle. I, I, of course, he's passed away at this point. Mm. I would have loved to have had uh, the opportunity to meet him. He is a personal hero of mine, and I am not somebody who, who has heroes. Mm. So that's saying a lot. I did have an email exchange with him. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, there was a, and, and a quick story about how that came about. Uh, a fellow by the name of Taylor Larimore, uh, is, I think he's one of the founders of what's called the Bogleheads here in the United States. It might even be international, I'm not sure. Yep. And uh, Taylor is a very elderly man at this point, too. I think he's in his 90s. But right. a few years ago, shortly after my book came out, he sent me a very nice email. And I'm not part of Bogleheads myself, but he sent me a very nice email telling me that he had read my book, he liked it, and he had done a review on the Bogleheads forum of my book, and he provided a link for it. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I read his review, and it was extremely generous and kind. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I looked him up a little bit, and it turns out that he and Jack Bogle are, are, were friends when, when Jack was still alive. And so anyway, I, I emailed him back, and I thanked him for, for his review, and, and we exchanged a few emails. And in one of those, I said, you know, I've always been kind of curious if Jack Bogle is aware of my book, if he's you know aware that it's out there, if he's happened to have looked at it or read it. And Taylor said, well, I don't know, but I'll ask him. Mm. And uh, I said, that's great. And, uh, and then I forgot about it, and... I don't know, months later, maybe half a year later, something like that, I was in Ecuador and we were in a little town of San Clemente and we were checking out of the hotel and, and headed to the airport. And, and uh, my wife was packing the last few things and, and I thought, well, I still have Wi-Fi. I think I'll just take a quick look and see what emails have come through. Mm. And uh, I, I checked my emails and there is an email from Jack Bogle. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and he and I opened it up, and and he talking about my book. I don't think he'd seen, seen it until Taylor point, and he is he is very kind in his comments. And I actually wrote a post about this. If you like, after the interview, I'll I'll send you a link to it. You can put it in the show notes. But fantastic. I, my, my, my my wife says I was like a five year old at Christmas. You know, <laughs> I, I was I was so excited. So never had the chance to personally talk to him or. Well, that's that's one step closer than most of our listeners. Um, so that's that's a piece of history, uh, which I'm sure you'll cherish for the rest of your life as well. Absolutely, JL. That concludes the interview, and thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much for what you do and the words of wisdom. And um, I will finish up with one quote from your book. And here goes, and it says, "Don't think about what your money can buy for you. Think about what your money can earn for you." then think about what that money it earns can earn. And there's so much truth to that simple concept. And that in itself summarizes a lot of things about investing. So uh, once again, thank you very much for um, sparing your time and uh, coming on board. It's been an honor and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Great questions. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that's it, folks. JL Collins, once again, thank you very much. It's just been an absolute honor. So really appreciate it. We'll have all the links to the book, 
to the stock series and JL will send me the link for the special post about uh, Jack Bogle's uh, email experience with uh, with JL. Now, like always, if you leave a five-star review, thank you very much on Apple Podcasts or all the other platforms uh, that you may be using or leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better. And uh, please pass this channel on to friends and family. Uh, and remember the three aims of the channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Medical. Until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.